God, I pray that you would be with us now. I thank you so much for uh, giving us your word. I thank you for sending your son uh, to teach us what it means to uh, live in obedience to you and to teach us what the kingdom of God is all about and the mission that he is on. I pray that as we uh, open your word today, we would get a, a greater sense of what that is, and, and I pray that we would come back to understand uh, the gospel even in a fresh way this morning. So we pray that you would send your spirit among us to open our hearts and minds to receive uh, your word as indeed words from you this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, when I was a kid, I wanted more than anything to be an athlete, and uh, I don't think I was ever quite foolish enough to think that I would be able to pray, uh, play professionally someday, uh, but I loved playing sports, and it didn't matter uh, what sport it was. I was always uh, willing to jump in, and so there was a group of friends that lived in our neighborhood, and, and all summer long, we would always have some kind of uh, baseball game or basketball or football or something going on, anything to get outside and to, and to play sports, and, and even in that little small group of friends, I was never the, the, quite the best at, at any one sport, uh, but I was always there. I, I loved playing sports, and, and I thought of myself as an athlete, and I hoped other people would think of me as an athlete as well. That was the image that I was uh, going for. Uh, but this terrible thing happened when I was uh, somewhere in the fourth grade age range. Uh, one of my friends, one of the guys that I always played sports with, uh, that was always just a little bit faster and a little bit better at basically every sport than me, he gave me the, the worst possible label, preppy. I think, come on, me? I'm not preppy. Come on, I'm an athlete. How can you give me this label? And, and, and to be honest, I didn't really know what it meant. I had to ask him what it meant. But, but as soon as I did, I, I knew it was not a good thing. I was devastated. I mean, for a kid growing up in Alaska wanting to be known for sports, this was basically the worst possible label. Not, not an athlete, not baller, nothing to do with sports, but preppy. That's the label that I got. And I, I was so uncomfortable with this. I, I wanted to fight against it. Say, that's not who I am. It doesn't do justice to the, the whole personhood and, and all the complexity of, of who I am. You've, you've reduced me down to this label. But, but that's what labels do, right? They, they throw someone into a category and you're able to deal with them as a category instead of dealing with them with all the complexity of a person that they are. And this happens in the religious world as well. So we, we'll be watching someone and, and we'll say, oh, okay, well, that's, that's that kind of person, or this is that kind of person. And we stick a label on them. But the problem is, it keeps us from seeing people like God sees them, and it also keeps us from seeing ourselves accurately as well. So today we're going to see uh, how Jesus makes us rethink our labels. And so he's going to tell some stories that we're going to look at today that challenge the way we look at the world, and in the process we'll learn more clearly about ourselves as well. So this is uh, week two of a short three-week series where we're refocusing our attention on our mission and vision as a church. And today we're looking at Luke uh, chapter 15, and, and this is a passage that's really been the central theme of our one mission vision, trying to see God's heart for those who are far from him, and then respond to others as he responds to them as well. So grab a Bible if you would. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 15. Uh, if you want, you can use a, a Bible from the Pew Rack. It's found on page 1625 of the Pew Bibles. So Luke 15, page 1625. So we're going to look at this together, and at first we're going to get the concept that Jesus is, is putting across, and then we're going to have a gut check to see if we really are okay with following him on this. So let's start with the concept itself. Jesus is going to teach us that he came to seek and save those who are far from God. So here's how it begins, Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
So notice right off the bat, immediately you get the labels. You've got tax collectors and sinners, and you've got Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now, for the first readers of this, for early readers, they would have immediately said, okay, those are bad people and those are good people. Right? Tax collectors were some of the most hated people around. They were considered thieves and they were considered traitors. And then sinners, well, I mean, what more can you say? They're, they're bad people. They're sinful people. That's who they are. So bad people. And then on the other hand, you've got Pharisees and, and experts in the law. And in our day, Pharisee is used as an insult. It's basically a self-righteous jerk. Um, but at that time period, these people were looked up to. They, they were the really good people. They, they were the ones who really knew God and lived in accordance with God's law. And the teachers of the law, well, they knew the Bible in and out. They, they knew everything about it. So those are the really good people. And what's happening is that the bad people are coming to Jesus. And the good people see this happening, and, and, and they don't get it. They're, they're not happy about it. And so they point out the problem. Jesus is welcoming sinners. And notice again, that's the label, sinners. He is welcoming sinners sinners. Now, some of us are too familiar with the stories that are going to come up, and, and so we kind of miss the, the scandal of what's happening here. See, there's actually a good reason for the Pharisees to be distancing themselves from this other group of people, and there's good reason for them to be upset about this. So, if you read the Bible, you go back to the wisdom literature, these, these uh, passages like books like Proverbs that say how life works best and how to live a wise life. They give warnings about stuff like this. So, Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and go on your way. Later, in Proverbs 13, verse 20, we again hear that you have to choose your friends wisely. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. So the Pharisees are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to live a wise, godly life, and they don't get how Jesus can do what he's doing. Because as soon as you identify someone as a sinful person, then you should distance yourself from them. Because your friends will influence who you are. If you hang out with good people, you become a good person. If you hang out with bad people, you become a bad person. I mean, isn't that what the wisdom literature is saying? And yet, here's Jesus, and he's welcoming the bad people. And his actions show that he wants to be their friend. He's having meals with them. He's sitting down to dinner with them. Why? Well, he tells a story to show what's really happening here. Luke 15, verse, 11, or verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So any reasonable shepherd in this culture would have done exactly what Jesus indicates here. You lose one sheep and you leave the 99. You go after that one sheep and you keep looking for it until you find that lost sheep. And then when you find it, you throw a party. You tell everybody, a great thing has happened. Look at the, rejoice with me. I have found my sheep again. Verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's the same plot. 
If you lose something that is valuable to you, you go and search for it as diligently as you can, and you don't stop looking until you find it. And then when you do find it, you throw a party, you tell everybody, you can't stop talking about it because you are so overjoyed. So these stories are designed to teach the Pharisees what's really happening here. And if you're like me, you can kind of understand the attitude of the Pharisees. Things don't quite look right here. It doesn't really add up. The, the neat labels of, of good people and bad people are, are blurring because the bad people are now coming to Jesus. And what's happening here? It, it feels weird. Well, Jesus is challenging them to, to rethink their labels. They're just throwing this label of sinner on there, and then they could just disregard these people. And, and that label has caused them to miss God's heart. See, if you want to understand God's heart, think about something that is really valuable to you. Think about losing something that you love. How would you respond? How how would you feel in a situation like that? What would you do? Well, every parent has watched their kids have this experience when when that loved toy goes missing, right? Has has anyone ever read the Nuffle Bunny book? Any kids uh, have a chance to read that? Uh, It's subtitled A Cautionary Tale uh, for Good Reasons. It, parents are supposed to take this as a caution and to take precautionary measures to make sure it doesn't happen to them. So in the story, this little toddler named Tracy, she can't yet talk, and, and she loses her special stuffed animal, the Nuffle Bunny, at the laundromat. And when she realizes it, she just breaks down in tears. She's inconsolable. And so they realize what happens. They go back to the laundromat. They're searching through everything they can, and they don't find it. And they tell her, I'm sorry, we, just, we can't find the, the Nuffle Bunny. And she just it starts bawling and bawling and bawling, absolutely losing it right there at the laundromat. And so her daddy is going to work harder. And so he rolls up his sleeves, he dives into the machines, he's looking at every single thing, and finally he pulls out Nuffle Bunny. And Tracy is overjoyed, and it's the first words out of her mouth are Nuffle Bunny, the first words she said in her life. Now she is filled with joy. She has her prized possession back. Everything is okay. That's how God feels about people who are far from him. Whatever we might want to label them, okay, they're this kind of person, maybe they're a bad person, maybe they're irredeemable, maybe they're not worth my time. Whatever we might want to label them, to God, they are lost sons and daughters. He loves them, and he wants them back with him so badly that he sent his own son to rescue them and to bring them back. Jesus says a couple chapters later in Luke 19, 10, that this is his mission, to seek and to save the lost, those who are far from God. So these, these initial stories, they, they teach us the concept. God sent Jesus to bring back his lost sons and daughters. But here's where we get the gut check. And it's with Jesus telling another story. It's a little bit lengthier. Verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So in the context of these three stories, it's pretty clear that this son is lost. He is at the end of himself. He's starving to that. The pigs have it better off than he does. He wishes he had the food that they had. And if the shepherd and if the woman felt the loss of the sheep and the coin, how much more the father? 
The sheep was one out of a hundred. The coin was one out of ten. This son is one out of two. And, and how much more valuable a son than a sheep or a coin. So you can imagine how heartbreaking this was for the father. This was the worst possible thing. He's lost his son. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So it's, it's a great picture of the lost being found. The son is reconciled to his father. So he takes responsibility for his rebellion. He recognizes his fault. He's ready to come back as a servant because he realized he ripped that relationship apart. He's not worthy to be a son anymore. And yet the father has a totally different plan. He's like, no, you are my son. He welcomes back as a full son with all the rights and privileges of a son, the best clothes, the best food, a big party thrown in his honor. See, the son has finally come to recognize that it's so much better to be with the father than to be without the father. He was lost, and he's found. It's a great story, but it's not without its problems. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And in the context of Jesus telling the story, it's clear that this older son, this older brother, he's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are complaining that Jesus is welcoming people that they label sinners. And, and this son is doing the same thing to the father. He's complaining to the father that the father's doing the wrong thing, that this son has been rebellious and bad and done all the wrong things, and he's welcoming back with a party. Instead, he should punish him, or he should re refuse to even speak to the son. He's giving the wrong impression. He's throwing him a party like, like everything is cool. Now, here's the thing. The older son is actually right. What the father's doing here is totally unreasonable. He is being reckless. So here's the difference between the story of the lost son and the story of the lost coin and the lost sheep. That coin is not at fault for getting lost, right? And, and sheep, the sheep might have wandered off, but sheep aren't exactly known for their intelligence, so you can kind of give the sheep a break for getting lost. So the sheep and the coin, yes, they're lost, but they're not morally culpable 
for being lost. They don't deserve the blame because it's not their fault. But the son is a totally different story. The son is the epitome of a fool from the biblical perspective. The Bible warns us against people like him and against being people like him. I mean, think about it. He is totally self-centered. He has no regard for his family or his family's honor. He is disrespectful toward his father. He is reckless with his money. He is totally selfish. He is a fool. And so when you look at what happens to this son, you say, you know what? He deserves everything he got. The reason that he is lower than the pigs and starving to death is because of the choices that he made. This is his fault, and he deserves all the blame for it. See, the gut check comes when we realize what it means for Jesus to seek after those who are far from God. This isn't about nice, innocent sheep or a coin that happened to roll off uh, underneath a counter or table or something like that. This is about people who have made choices to hurt themselves and to hurt other people. This is about people who have consciously rebelled against God and said that they want nothing to do with him. So if we want to understand God's heart, we first have to think about losing something incredibly valuable to us. And then to see if we really understand what's happening here, think about the person that you would consider the least deserving of any kind of attention or any kind of help. That person that seems to make bad choice after bad choice after bad choice, and they hurt everybody around them. There's the whole trail of destruction in their wake. So you think about that person. Did Jesus really come for them? Is that person really worth rescuing? See, we have to admit that this is not easy. It's, it's very easy for us to grow frustrated with people. It's very easy for us to give up on people. I just don't know. I heard a story that kind of adds to this gut check. It makes you think. Law enforcement responded to a heroin overdose recently. And they got there in time. They were able to uh, administer Narcan. They saved this man's life. It was an amazing thing. They, they basically brought him back from the dead. And there have been so many uh, overdoses, so many deaths in our community. They, they rescued him. They saved a life. They're, they're heroes. So they felt great about this. Short time later, they responded to another call, another heroin overdose. And they get there in time. They administer Narcan. They bring this guy back. And then they realize it's the same guy. I mean, they just saved this guy's life. He he saw that he was at the very verge of death, and then he's right back to the same pattern as before. And you can imagine, if you're in their shoes, thinking, well, why are we even doing this? Why don't we just give up on this guy? Is this worth it at all? The answer is a resounding yes, absolutely. I mean, even from the perspective of, of what's happening here with addiction, all that, there's so much complexity wrapped up in that. But then from the perspective of the gospel, so much more, because here is someone who is created in the image of God, someone that God loves so much that he sent his own son to rescue and redeem this person. See, if we ever start to give up on someone, if we're ever tempted to look at someone and think that they are beyond God's grace, we have to come back to this story and see, no, this is God's heart. He doesn't look with animosity toward those who are far from him. He sees them as his lost sons and daughters. He loves them as his own. And that's why he sent Jesus, to seek and to save those who are far from him. And that's why Jesus is telling this story. It's showing us the amazing thing of the gospel, the good news that God sent Jesus to rescue sinners. And and the truth is that he came for people like this spoiled brat son that we saw him. If if we saw him, we'd want to punch him in the face because he's so selfish and arrogant and guilty and he deserves to be punished. 
We would hate this guy. And yet Jesus came to rescue him, to give him life and hope. It's an amazing story. See, we have to throw out all those labels that we have, all of our ways of thinking about others. We've just got to get rid of that stuff so we can see people like Jesus sees them. And here's the thing. You and I are those same people. The same heart that's in the younger son, the same bitter heart that's in the older son, that's in our hearts as well. We are no different from anyone else. We are all totally equal in the same position before God in need of his grace. If you think that you don't need God's forgiveness, you are deluded and self-deceived. The Bible is so clear on this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were all dead in our sins and transgressions. We deserved God's wrath, but because of his amazing love and grace toward us, he made us alive with his son Jesus. And at the end of the story, the whole thing shows that our, our thinking is so twisted it flips the whole story on us. It's the younger son, the one who made all the bad choices. It's the younger son who's reconciled to the father. And at the end of the story, the older son, the one who did all the right things, he's separated from the father. He's estranged. It's a total reversal of what the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' time and the good religious people of our time would expect. It defies our labels and it defies our expectations. See, this whole thing is about a relationship with the Father, a living relationship with the God who created us. And here's what happens. Some of us, we run away from God. We run away from that relationship by going on a journey of self-discovery and and throwing off all rules and and just finding our own way. We have to realize that the end of that is emptiness. That's what the younger son found out. And others of us, we, we, we run away from God by being really near to him, and we try to attempt this whole idea of self-salvation by morality and doing really good things and being a religious person. And we have to realize that the end of that road is bitterness and anger. That's what the older son discovered. See, whatever your tendency is, however you run away from God, you have to realize that Jesus came for you. He came for me. And the Father has open arms welcoming us home that's what this amounts to. Jesus is making us reconciled to the Father. See, the amazing truth of the gospel is that God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die to rescue us, and that rescue is for people like you and me who don't deserve it. And if we're ever to understand Jesus, if we're ever to understand this message of the gospel, we have to understand that we do not deserve it. I do not deserve it. And that's what turns Pharisees into missionaries. That's what transforms this whole picture for us. It's recognizing that we are all in the same place needing God's rescue. It's captured well in a quote that maybe you've heard somewhere along the line. Christianity is simply one beggar telling another beggar, hey, here's where I found the food. That you and I are not perfect people. Church people are not perfect people. We carry the same wounds and the same heart issues and the same burdens as everyone else. So all the problems we might think are out there are right in here. We struggle with the same things. In our church family are people who struggle with anger and jealousy and bitterness and addiction and everything else. But Jesus came to rescue us, and he is doing a work in our hearts. We were lost, but he found us. We were dead, but he made us alive. The greatest thing in the world has happened to us, and now we're going to tell everyone we can what happened to us, to, to testify, this is what Jesus has done in my life. But we have to change our thinking about ourselves, and we have to change our thinking about the people around us. That The labels that we want to apply to others, whether that's sinner or Pharisee or anything else, that doesn't do us any good. It just keeps us from seeing people like God sees them, loved sons and daughters, people that Jesus came to search for and to rescue. 
So as Jesus tells these three stories, what he's doing is giving an open-ended invitation to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, and that same open-ended invitation comes to us as well, comes to the church today. Will we be a church of the older brother, or will we be a church that follows the heart of the father? That's what this whole thing comes down to. And it is much easier and much less messy and allows for much neater categories if we choose to be a church of the older brother. But that's not God's heart. That's not what we are called to. We are called to see the heart of the Father, to see that the God who created us loves each one of us so much that he sent Jesus to rescue the least deserving among us and then to live in line with his heart. That's what our vision of one mission is all about. It's saying always one more. We're going to reject passivity. We're not going to be passive, hoping people might somehow find their way to us. And we're not going to set a certain level of a threshold of this is what morality you have to get to. This is how you have to dress. This is how you have to behave to be able to hear about Jesus. We're going to take personal responsibility, each one of us, to join the search party and to go out and to bring the good news of Jesus out into our community to be always welcoming everyone who comes through our doors and to point them to the great love of God for them. Now, if you're still trying to figure out what you believe about Jesus and and still wrestling through all this, just, just know this. Know that he loves you. He is for you. He's not angry with you. He doesn't have animosity toward you. He sent his son to rescue you. He loves you deeply. And we as a church family, we love you too. We love our neighbors. We love our community. We're so grateful to God for the people that he's put in our lives. We don't see ourselves as better than other people. We recognize that we are in need of God's grace. Know that God is for you. And church, we have to understand that that life is messy and living on mission as a church gets messy. The Pharisees, they were complaining because they didn't like the messy part of it. They wanted to be able to have neat labels and neat categories and clear boundaries. Don't be surprised when things look and feel messy. And this might be uncomfortable for some of us, but, but we see it in the ministry of Jesus. Look at the people that, that spent time with him. Literally, prostitutes and revolutionaries and thieves. These are the kind of people that came to Jesus to hear him. We want our lives to look like his life. And we are not anyone's savior. Of course, we cannot save anyone, but we are called by the one and only savior to join in his mission of seeking after those who are far from him. And never forget what is at stake here. Remember why we do this. Some of you are worried about your your kids or your grandkids right now. And you see that they're struggling and maybe they've made some bad choices. Maybe you feel like they're rebelling against you. And, And you know, as a parent or as a grandparent, you would do anything for those kids, anything for those grandkids. That's the same kind of of heartbeat here. Forget about what I want. Forget about my preferences. This is is what I am called to in Jesus, and I know it's going to be messy, and and I'm okay with the mess because it's so much more important that they get to hear about Jesus. That's what it comes down to. And what that means is that we have to constantly be checking our hearts. We have to constantly come back to the truth of the gospel. We have to constantly throw out our, our tendency to label other people and to live intentionally. Now, if that sounds like it's hard work, it is hard work. But don't miss this. There is so much joy. The the overwhelming emotion in these stories at the end is joy. So yes, there's the, the hard work of seeking, but the seeking is for the joy of when you finally find that lost sheep, that lost coin, that lost son. There is so much joy in this passage. I think about it like the, the overwhelming joy of, of a wife getting her husband back from months-long deployment. 
kind of a sucker for these reunion pictures or these reunion videos, and I'll scroll through all sorts of things on Facebook. But when I see one of these, I've got to stop and, and watch it through to the end, and I get all teary-eyed, and I get all choked up, and I'm crying with a family. But you just see, there is so much joy wrapped up in that. After months and months and months, long months of being estranged, they're back together, and there's that love and that joy, pure joy. That's what this is about. That's what drives us forward. This is what makes it so worth it because we realize that God has a plan and he calls us to be part of that plan and part of the mission of Jesus and we do it for the joy of being able to welcome back our brothers and sisters for them to experience new life in his son. We recognize that we could never do this in our own strength. If if this was relying on us getting it right all the time, absolute failure. So we're going to spend some time now praying that God would shape our hearts And that he would make us effective at bringing the gospel out into our community. That he would draw people back to himself. So let's spend some time praying together. God, I thank you that you are a God who doesn't give up on us. We think of how many times we have failed. How many times that we would have given up on us. And yet again and again and again, you forgive us. And you never give up on us. And you call us back to yourself. God, I pray for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that you would give us a heart that matches your heart. I pray that you would free us from bitterness and jealousy and envy. I pray that you would free us from this tendency to to give labels to others and to write them off as, as irredeemable or as not worth our time. I pray instead that you would help us to see your heart and that our heart would be in line with your heart. And God, what drives us is being able to see more people come to trust in your son, Jesus. We want to be able to celebrate along with the angels in heaven over sinners who come back to you, our lost brothers and sisters, finding life in your son. 